Thanks to Kevin McLeod. That was his song, Cantina Blues, and it's available on his website, www.incomptech.com. It's a free song, so feel free to download it and listen to it yourself. He's got heaps of other stuff there. Thanks again, Kevin. G'day, and welcome to the Gelball Podcast. My name is Tractor, and I am your host. Today, we're going to go a lot longer than we normally do, so I'm going to break it up. Uh, I'll give you a list of all the things we're talking about and a little timestamp so that you can skip ahead later. So the first point is the difference between milsim and casual games, and the timestamp is 2 minutes 10 seconds. The next thing, how much firing will you do in a milsim compared to a normal game? That's at 3 minutes and 32 seconds. The next one, ammunition and how it is allocated and used in our milsims. That's at 5 minutes and 37 seconds. Next, roleplay in a milsim and how that all works as mechanics, 6 minutes 48 seconds. The next one, emulation, simulation and stolen valor at 8 minutes 15 seconds. Next, equipment for milsim versus casual games at 10 minutes 38 seconds. Because of the confusion, the next thing we're going to cover is the tier structure at OEP at 14 minutes and 14 seconds. And the last subject we're going to cover is what a non-player character is and what props are at Eastern Predator at exactly 19 minutes. If you really want to skip to the end, 21 minutes and 30 seconds and you'll hear me in closing. So, as I said before, welcome to the Joel Ball Podcast and let's get on to our first topic, the difference between Milsim and a casual game. So, on to our first topic. Milsim is more like a marathon compared to speedball, which is a sprint, and that's a very simple analogy. In speedball games, the action is hard and fast, lots of contact and lots of adrenaline. But there is also a pause in the operational tempo when you are knocked out of play, or as we call it, getting killed. Comparing that to a Milsim, you'll do a lot of things that lead to contact, but emulate the day-to-day life of a real soldier. The op tempo will be a lot slower, but go for at least 24 hours instead of maybe 3 to 4 hours. When you're knocked out, and I'll use the word killed here as your character in the game is killed, you don't just walk back to a respawn point or reset. And it's not like a computer game where you instantly reappear at the respawn and you start fighting again. You have to go through a procedure and play act a little. There might be the application of a bandage or a tourniquet or maybe even a sling to simulate your wounds. Or you may have to be dragged into cover by your buddies. Heck, you may even be in-game unconscious and need carrying or stretchering back to a medical facility. So these things require what we call the suspension of disbelief. And I'll talk about that in one of the later subjects. So the next thing we're going to talk about is how much you're going to fire. In terms of firing... You might fire 10 magazines in a Milsim game over the complete period of the game. So maybe an average of 100 rounds an hour. Whereas you might fire two to 300 rounds in one speedball game of a few minutes. This leads me to the obvious questions that some people will have about things like the M249. In speedball, you can carry almost any blaster you want, depending on the field or facility you play at. In Milsim, a real soldier in real warfare doesn't always get to choose their issued firearm. So in a Milsim, you will have rules limiting your choice of blasters. 
and that will have consequences based on what faction you are part of. For example, a squad might need X amount of people before that squad can have any machine gun style blaster. And if you don't have a machine gun style blaster, there's things such as drum magazines where you can simulate that sustained fire that a machine gun might give. If I use snipe as an example, you might have limitations on what you can and can't do as a sniper. You might have to radio in before you can shoot at a target. You might have to do certain things. If you get seen, there might be points lost, so on and so forth. So there are different role play aspects affecting your weapons, such as the country you're playing is. You might be a resistance movement that uses anything it can find or squander from the battlefield. Or you might be a squad of Delta Squirrels that only roll with an SR-25 or a HK-416. So in terms of firing, you're going to have a very different experience with fire rates and the amount of ammunition you use in a milsim compared to blasting away at full auto for two minutes straight, as some people do in speedball. We're not saying that's better or worse, it's just different. The other thing that will be different in milsims that I run, like Op Eastern Predator, is how much ammunition you can carry at any one time. Now I'm not going to limit you to 210 rounds or 300 rounds of ammo when you go out on patrol, which is what a real soldier might have. But I am going to limit your ability to resupply your ammunition. You're not going to be carrying a 3 litre milk carton full of gel balls ready to blast away at free will. What we intend to do here is have you feel like once you've completed an assault on a target or some sort of combat that you need to get resupplied. You need to get that logistic ball and chain that a real soldier has and engage with it. So it's not about making you fire semi-auto or anything else. It's about feeling like a real soldier would feel in battle and having to constrain your use of ammo so that you get a taste of reality. But obviously we're going to up that so that you can have more realistic gel ball experience because, look, they work different to a real projectile. The next thing is the role play aspect. Now different th venues deal with this in different ways. You can go for a full-on LARP or live-action roleplay type game where there are linear or specific challenges or stories available, or something a little less structured and freeform that develops on idea branches as the game evolves in the day. Think of a choose-your-own-adventure or bandersnatch style activity. The key to these as a player is understanding that you need to dress up and act a little bit. You may have to interact with locals that are not meant to be engaged with violence. Or you may have game rules that penalise you for firing under certain conditions to simulate the laws of the Geneva Convention, for example. What you need here is a tiny slice of your inner child or something called the suspension of disbelief, which I talked about earlier. Now, this isn't some special skill that only actors have. Anyone can do this. In fact, if you've ever watched television or a movie or played some sort of video game, you have enough ability to suspend disbelief to conduct a milsim activity. It's mainly for squad leaders, medics and the volunteers or NPCs that help the milsim roll on. If you are just a guy in a squad you can happily play away enjoying it without too many fears of needing the skills to act. The next topic I want to cover 
is about emulation, simulation, badges, ranks, and so on and so forth. So my version of MilSim is all about emulating, not directly simulating a specific thing. What I mean by this is I discourage the use of real-world ranks, units, titles, and badges. I suppose that comes from my time in the Army and having seen some stolen valour here in Australia in the last few years while I've been a civilian. So, and this is my personal thing, I will always use fictional names and titles and create a story in a fictional country. The flip side of this is it allows people to be free of politics or the theory of good versus bad in a game, that a certain person is right in their actions or wrong in their actions. You can play on either side without having a vested historic or political allegiance towards that side. For example, I've always played as a Western Hemisphere character, but I'm very keen to try to be a communist or an insurgent in the future, as the way you act is quite different inside the game mechanics. It's also something that I've never been part of in my real life, so it's a bit of holiday for a lack of a better phrase. Now some people get funny about wearing ranks and badges. And I'm about 50-50 with my feet in both camps myself. So for example, I would never wear a Navy SEAL badge, as I find it's disrespectful to those who have actually earned it. In fact, in my army days I did attempt SF selection, and I failed. I have no illusions about who I was, or who I could have been in that regard. So people that do wear that beret or badge of an SF unit, I know of skills I never had nor will I ever possess. Yes, I have some of the skills of a basic soldier, and of an NCO, and of a senior NCO, but I'm certainly not the tip of the spear. Now here, I'm not saying that your team can't be like one squadron Delta Squirrels of Uzbekistan. Hell no! This at the end of the day is a game for mainly adults to play, so the key point I make here is emulate and don't simulate. It's a very nuanced word. To me, however, it is an important distinction. This segues nicely into the next topic, which is more about equipment. So at a speedball day or game, you'll see people wearing normal clothes. Team coloured shirts, fishing shirts, king G's, camo t-shirts, full cams, and every sort of belt, vest and pouch you can imagine. In Milsim, this isn't the case. There is a distinct effort by the players to have everyone in your team authentic and in very close to the exact same gear. The idea here is to emulate a military unit that would be issued from the same warehouse, all the same equipment. Call it uniformity, because that's what it is. Now, some Milsim players are what I call geardos. They get into the tactical. They spend inordinate amounts of money that I would never spend on blasters and the most Gucci shiny kit possible. There are certain camouflage pants out there that are 2000 US dollars. Some people might buy that, that's not something I'm ever going to buy. Now for clarity, I do want to say that a camo t-shirt and a pair of shorts isn't something you can do in a real milsim. There is a level of equipment you need but budgeting isn't the most important aspect of this. I'll give you an example. Last week, I went to Centenary Disposals in the western suburbs of Brisbane. This is what I'd call the old-style disposal stores. It's not like some of the newer camping stores, and even what the brand Aussie Disposals does nowadays. 
these guys actually stock lots, and I mean rows and rows, of second-hand ex-military gear and camouflage uniforms. And it's not just from Australia. They also have some new stuff. They have enough DPCU uniform kit to outfit a whole scout jamboree and not break the bank. So the point I want to make here is choosing your gear for a mill sim isn't about spending the most money. It's not about budget. You might have to bite the bullet and get some cheaper gear for the first go around. If you can't fully kit yourself as an Aussie style soldier for under 250 bucks in second hand gear, I'll be shocked. And you'll even pick up stuff in St Vinnie's and, and those sort of stores as well that you can use in a mill sim. Now on the militia side of the house, you're going to have a lot more freedom in what you wear because you're going to be essentially a civilian. So the rules for my next milsim at OEP, or Op Eastern Predator, say that the militia can't wear camouflage. So that means you can literally go to St Vinnie's and buy a bunch of secondhand workwear and pretend you're the village mechanic. Or you can wear tactical pants that are black or brown or whatever else. But the idea is that it's a very quick way for you to identify when you're looking at somebody, they are not and I'll use inverted commas here, in the military. So in the future, we're going to change that rule most likely, but for now, we're sticking with militia. You're going to wear civilian clothes, but for saving people the budget, if you've got a vest or a chest rig or a set of webbing that you want to use as a militia, we're going to establish that you've scored that by stealing it off a dead person or whatever else. So it's in the realms of reality so the next subject we're going to talk about is the tier structure um, and I'm specifically going to talk about this at Eastern Predator because it's a vital aspect of the thing. So there has been some confusion on this and I want to use spoken language to convey this message because the written word doesn't always get across the nuances. Tier 1 is for people that have all the kit and have played a little bit. They are ready as a small team. They've probably met several times done a bit of training, they probably live in the same location and they have everything they need without leaving the game field. The bulk of players at Eastern Predator I expect to be Tier 1, well over 80% of players. Tier 2 has some relaxation, so the players for different reasons may not be able to buy everything quite yet. They may have a physical limitation like diabetes or sleep apnea or some sort of chronic injury or illness where they can't exert themselves to the same level that a normal person can. They may also not have the financial means to buy a bunch of special camping equipment to suit a mobile military patrolling scenario. So in this regard, they can pinch their bright orange tent without disturbing the suspension of disbelief. Another thing is they may have to work the next day so they're going to need a certain amount of rest or sleep to drive to work, etc. But these are going to be a very small percentage of players. Maybe 10 or 15%. Or maybe 10 or 15 people. So the way I employ Tier 2 is to give these people an option to still be part of the game, but also have the ability to tend to their special needs. For example... A Tier 1 player cannot leave the field except for injury or personal tragedy reasons without speaking to the command team. A Tier 2 player 
has the ability to be outside the game mechanics for up to 6 hours in a 24 hour period. Now this is something complex to manage and it's part of the team build up for the event. The team that has tier 2 players, or if it's an entire team of tier 2 players, need to shoulder the burden if one of those players is out of the game, or they need to manage it in some way. This is complex and it's something you're going to need to discuss robustly as a team, well before Eastern Predator. There was a thought that tier 2 teams might all walk off the field at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock or 10 o'clock. In fact, we have a staggered plan. This will be a 24 hour a day operation. Tier 2 players will need to talk to the headquarters team before they leave the field, so we don't have a max exodus. And let's face it, some of the best fun in a Milsim game is at night. So you might choose to have a two hour nap or a two hour break or you need to get certain special foods if you're lactose intolerant. So you'll take half an hour off at a mealtime. But all of that needs to be coordinated through a special radio network that we have to manage the event. And every leader of every team on the field will have one of these radios. In reality, I think maybe a max of 10 or 15% of players will be Tier 2. Tier 3 is where it's a little bit more interesting and requires us as the command team to manage much more intensively. These are people who just rock up to the event during the day. Now, I don't expect these people to be driving a couple of hundred kilometres to come and play. They're going to be more like a Tier 1 team. But they may have a range of reasons why they can't commit for the full event. But my aim is for a casual first-time player to dip their toes in the water without a great investment in gear or time. They may love speedball, but not know if Milsim is for them. So they want to see from inside the game, not just a spectator on the sidelines, what a Milsim is actually like, as opposed to what somebody has told them about it. My last point is from my experience, 98% of attendees will end up playing the full game. Even the Tier 2 players will find they only leave the game for essential things as they don't want to miss any more than they have to. Because, let's face it, once you get there, you're either going to love it or hate it, and you're not going to want to leave if you love it. The last major subject I want to cover is about NPC and props, NPC being non-player characters. So first of those, I'll cover an NPC. Anybody who has ever played a video game or some board games like Dungeons and Dragons and so on and so forth will understand a non-player character is there to enhance the story and give you some interaction to evolve the story or give you a range of choices to make. This is exactly the same in Milsim. For example, for OEP, we have a guy that has played a lot of games with us on weekends that will play the entire game as the Mayor of Redfall. Redfall is a small village in Astana. He won't be on the team of Coalition, and he won't be on the team of Militia. He'll be commanded by himself. He'll interact with the command team so that we know what the evolving scenario is, but really, he's not on either side. So both teams can interact with this guy in order to try and make the game go in the direction that they want it to. There will be also members of the press. There will be aid workers or NGOs, non-government organisations. 
and each of these will have their own reasons and gender for being in Astana within the game scenario. So your interactions with these will be very interesting, I hope. And having served for in UN operations in another country, I know it was certainly very interesting to deal with the different ideals and ideas of different groups, whether it be religious or whatever else, it's a very interesting way to look at things. The last part of this subject is props. Now, a prop is normally a static object that means something in the game. It can be anything from a briefcase full of intel up to a coal-fired power plant. But these things were introduced to enhance the storyline and giving you a physical object to interact with. So it might be something like you have to go to a river where there's a pump or there's a dam where the water's been poisoned. All those sorts of things will relate to a physical object where you don't have to pretend something is there. There will be a physical thing there. And, and we'll build that um, in the same way that a movie, a movie studio might. So as a bit of a conclusion, hopefully you got something out of today's podcast. This is the first time I've done heavy editing and scripting, so it has allowed me to talk a lot longer without feeling like I'm rambling or wasting your time, more importantly. Let me know on Facebook if you like this better or worse than the previous ones. Also, let me know what you want me to talk about. It's ironic, this is the fifth take that I've done of this last 30 seconds of talking. So, it was well worth doing this in little slices. Thanks for listening. I've been Tractor, and this was the Joel Ball Podcast.